On March 5th of last year, a team of researchers located and filmed an underwater wreck of a ship off the coast of Antarctica. It's a British ship named the Endurance. It was in the Weddell Sea. And it was a major find because the Endurance is one of the most famous wrecks from the age of Arctic and Antarctic exploration. It had set out 106 years earlier, August 8th, 1914, on her maiden voyage, it would be her only voyage. Aboard were 27 men under the command of Ernest Shackleton, an explorer who was attempting to make the first trans-Antarctic journey, meaning he wanted to land on one side and on foot and with sled dogs walk across to the other side. I don't know why he thought this was a key thing to do, but he did. What happened was a couple of days after making landfall, the Endurance became trapped in floating ice flows that had blown around them in a storm. And that began a 10-month ordeal, first of trying to ram the ship ahead into the ice, hoping to break out into open sea, uh, trying to chop the ice around the ship. All was to no avail. Finally, they had simply to wait and see what would happen. Uh, The ice would eventually release, but before it did, it pressed together with incredible pressure. Uh, They had to flee the ship and get off as much food as they could. Uh, The ice would first kind of crush the ship, lift it up in the air, and then the flows came apart, dropping it into the ocean deep. That's what they would find 106 years later. This left the men to camp on the ice, where they would need to survive another seven months, nearly freezing, nearly starving, and with no way to communicate to anyone the predicament that they were in. Alfred Lansing's classic book, Endurance, documents their ordeal. Uh, He combed the diaries of the men to reconstruct what had happened. And he brings out two striking facts. First is the quality of leadership that Shackleton exhibited. From the first, he, he never let his men forget the objective, which was to get off and get home. And many times they did try to forget. He had to ration the food rather than letting them eat it up. He had to harbor their resources. He had to put out petty squabbles among the men. Before they abandoned the ship for the last time to set out walking on the ice, he gathered the men around and he started throwing his personal effects into a pile in the middle, his gold coins, his pictures. He even took his Bible and he said to save weight, he wanted to rip out what was most necessary. So he ripped out the 23rd Psalm in the book of Job. So he led them all to throw any unnecessary weight into the middle. Um, He was an amazing leader. You, You can read a great deal about the leadership of this impressive man. But the second thing that stands out, and equally impressive, is the way the men under his command responded. I mean, there were murmurs, but never mutiny. There were complaints, but never catastrophe. For a year and a half, through every manner of suffering, they trusted him. Shackleton would later write this. Loneliness is the penalty of leadership. But the man who has to make the decisions is assisted greatly if he feels that there is no uncertainty in the minds of those who follow him and that his orders will be carried out confidently and in expectation of success. Friends, we find ourselves in the final chapter of this glorious epistle to the Hebrews. It's an unknown first century pastor that's writing to a church that he loves dearly, he knows well. And this final chapter is a series of exhortations to love the church, to honor marriage, to live a life of financial contentment as Lutming helped us consider so well last week. But before asking for prayer, this pastor turns to a final and essential aspect of our Christian lives. 
how we view and respond to Christian leaders. Now, as we take up this topic, I'm aware that we live in an age where leadership has fallen onto hard times. Authority is out of vogue. There are just too many examples, we often feel, of leaders who use their power and position to promote themselves, to enrich themselves. They do so at the expense of those they're supposed to be serving. So many are asking, can leadership be good? Well, the writer of Hebrews certainly thinks so. He writes this passage to tell us that we should follow good leaders because they help us follow Christ. And that's our main idea this morning. We should follow good leaders because they help us follow Christ. In our outline, I want us to think about three things that are true of good leaders. Help us to spot them. Help us to know what they are like. What is a good Christian leader like? Three things. If you're taking notes, you want to write these down. I hope you have a good conversation later over lunch. Number one, good leaders are unoriginal. They are unoriginal. That's verses 7 and 8. Second, good leaders tell you the truth about false teaching. Tell you, to, tell you the truth about false teaching. That's verses 9 through 14. And then third and finally, good leaders work for your benefit. They work for your benefit. That'll be verses 15 through 17. Let's dive in and think first that good leaders are unoriginal. In Hebrews 13, verses 7 and 8. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Uh, you'll notice if you look, we're, we're, we're studying verses 7 through 17, and, and there are bookends speaking about leaders. So remember your leaders in verse 7, down in verse 17, obey your leaders. So that's, that's kind of the sandwich that we're looking at this morning. But in verse 7 here, the church is called to look back at former leaders, to remember them. And the phrase there, consider the outcome of their way of life, more literally consider their end or the terminal point of their life. It, it indicates that likely these are the, the leaders who first preached the gospel to start the church, but these are leaders that are now dead. So you can imagine the, the inspiring call that we have here to, to remember these dear, beloved church planters who are now gone. So this inspiring call is, is, is really a complete picture of remembrance. Look at this. They should remember, first of all, what they taught them about the Word of God. You know, it really doesn't matter so much whether you can remember certain sermons or not. I'm too old of a preacher to ever ask a congregation, do you remember what we talked about last week? Uh, fellow preachers, don't ever do that. You're only going to discourage yourself and your congregation, okay? But, but that doesn't mean that the storehouse of biblical teaching that is brought by asking us to think about the text week by week, doesn't have an effect. It, it surely does. Both the example of it and this storehouse of truth that's in the mind. And they should remember, secondly, their way of life, meaning their personal walk with God, their, their commitment to personal holiness, the, the way they organize their time according to eternal priorities, their evident love for people. Then, as they remember these two things, the word of God they spoke and the way of life they lived, he exhorts them to imitate their faith, to follow after them as they followed after the Lord. You know, when I think about my own growth as a Christian, it was nearly all based on imitation. Uh, I, I bought the, the Bible that my Bible study leader had in college. I bought the same one the NIV study Bible, and, and I would open it and read it just like I saw him doing. Uh, I remember Todd Meyer seeing him meet up with other, other Christians 
in the dining hall at JMU, and he would ask them about their quiet time. I think I did that before I knew what a quiet time was. It was just copying Todd. I remember seeing this group of guys that would show up early to church on Sunday. We were meeting in a, in a high school gymnasium, and they showed up early to set up chairs. I did that. Friends, how much of our Christian life is supposed to be imitating good and godly examples that are out there for us? It's worth asking both who are you imitating right now and whether you're living a life that's worth others imitating. Now, why does the author say that they should remember and imitate these leaders? Verse 8 is an interesting verse, has to be one of the most quoted out-of-context verses in the whole Bible. Why does he say this here? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, he's saying that what those former leaders taught about him, about Jesus, is the same thing you're being taught about him right now. And Lord willing, it'll be the same thing that's being taught about him all the way until he returns. Isn't that interesting? He, he grounds the call to imitate these guys by saying that they are utterly and completely unoriginal. One of the first things I did when I was asked to candidate for a pastoral position at this church was to get on the website and read that wonderful history uh, that is recorded there. Um, if, if you haven't, you really ought to. Uh, so go to, go to our website, go to Explore, and then go to Grace Baptist Church, and then go to History. Uh, it, it's organized by decades, 1950s, the 1960s, and on. It has some wonderful black and white and color photos, some explanation, the more than 60-year history of this church. Uh, many of you are like me, and, and you've joined this church in the last five years. So the pictures there... They're just pictures to us. They're nice, have something to look at. But to some of you, pictures of Amelia Clement and Dorcas Lau are very moving things to look at, aren't they? To some of you, those, those wonderful black and whites of, of Herbert Holly and Ernest Paulson remind you of things. They, they cause you to remember first gatherings and first sermons, and first faith. You know, you know, if you think about it, Christianity is just one long chain of a passed-down message. The inspired Word of God and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit ensures that the message is preserved in its integrity, but it's an old, old story. Remember that hymn? Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. So though I wasn't here, I've never heard any of those people that I just mentioned speak. I know what they were saying. I know because the message has been preserved generation after generation here. I know what your former preachers were preaching about. They were preaching about Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God, who in the fullness of time became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He lived a perfect life, and he died a substitutionary death for sin on a Roman cross of wood. They were preaching that he was raised three days later from the grave for our justification. And they were teaching that he is in heaven even now, waiting his return, where he will come to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will have no end. Charles Spurgeon tells a story about his grandfather. He writes this, I shall never forget one day when my dear old grandfather was alive, I was to preach a sermon. There was a great crowd of people, and I did not arrive, for the train was delayed, and therefore the venerable man commenced to preach in my stead. He was far on in his sermon when I made my appearance at the door. Looking to me, he said, You have all come to hear my dear grandson, and therefore I will stop that you may hear him. 
But I want you to know, he may preach the gospel better than me, but he cannot preach a better gospel. That's it right there. That's the idea. Spurgeon goes on to say, do not imagine that God will bless one preacher only or one denomination only. He does bless some preachers more than others, for he is sovereign, but he will bless you all in your work, for he is God. The message about Jesus never changes. This is what good leaders provide. Their teaching and their lives, they amplify the witness of their teaching, and they provide truth to believe and an example to follow. We are to remember them, to think on them, or to imitate their faith. I think a word of application here is just to choose a church wisely. Uh, The younger generation is increasingly mobile. Uh, Some of you will be here until you die. Many of you will be in other churches in other places. And I know very well that there's a whole constellation of decisions or factors that go into deciding where to go to church. It's not easy. There are geographical questions. There are relational questions, needs of children and young people, opportunities to serve. But friends, remember that not all considerations are equal. God always forms his people through his word. He will always grow his people through his word. There's nothing else that his spirit will bless because his spirit inspired the word. There is in that sense no dichotomy between a a, a spirit-filled church and a word-centered church. If you ever hear that sort of a dichotomy, that is utter nonsense. You resolve to always search until you find a church led by leaders who speak the word of God, whose message is an unoriginal one of an unchanging Jesus. If that church meets under a tree with no parking or children's program, you go there. That's our first point. Let's consider a second thing about good leaders. Pick up the text in verse 9. Good leaders tell you the truth about false teaching. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We'll stop there. Uh, It's clear that this church was in danger. Uh, We see it here in the words, do not be led away. The entire book of Hebrews has been one long call for this church to endure in their faith, to not give up on Christ and the gospel for something else. We see here something of the specific temptations they were experiencing. He, He tells them not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Then he zeroes in on one particular strange teaching that I think was besetting them. I was thinking about how biblical interpretation in some ways, uh, you ever been on the MRT and and somebody uh, takes a telephone call, which I don't think you're supposed to do on the MRT, I don't know, it says so on the sign, but but they take a a call and you you shouldn't eavesdrop into their conversation, but you can't help it because they're right there. And, and if, if you're like me, you then try to figure out what, what, what's going on in the conversation. Okay? Uh, biblical interpretation, especially of New Testament letters, is a bit like listening to one side of a telephone call. Uh, we, we don't have access to the, the things they're saying or the things that they've written. Uh, we're trying to piece it together. So we've got several clues what's going on. Notice first in verse 9 when he says it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. Some kind of ritual meal or ceremonial meal is in view here. The second thing we should notice, it it is connected with Judaism. When he mentions the altar in verse 10, and then those who serve the tent or the tabernacle as priests, 
And all of verse 11 is a reference to Yom Kippur, to the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where animals were sacrificed for their blood as a sin offering, but their bodies were burned outside the camp. So this is some sort of food ritual connected with Judaism. And then the third thing we should notice is that it had real attraction to these people. So something about it drew them. Else, why worry about them being led away? And I think we can guess why. This is the religion many of them originally would have come from. They grew up in it. Uh, Judaism was an approved religion by the Roman government. I mean, think about the attraction of, of being able to, to normalize your relationship with the government, to be legal. Certainly that would have lessened their persecution. And, and what, most of all, whatever this teaching was, I mean, what he, what he says there in verse 14, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that's to come. It, it indicates that, that this thing, this teaching, whatever it was, it promised temporal blessings now. All these things made it attractive to them. Now, before we think about how he addresses the false teaching, we should ask, are, are we surrounded by false teaching today? I think sadly we are. I mean, I started trying to just think of false teaching among Christians that I have heard recently. I, it didn't take long. I just I started. So, so one I hear is that, that love is defined by your affirmation of my choices, not my eternal good. So that, that's one I hear a lot. Uh, second one, hoarding wealth is a good and godly thing to do. Third one, even though Jesus said, no one knows the time of his return, I know the time of his return. I, I just boggles the mind. I mean, I, I know that there will be terrible times in the last days. I, I know that what's going on in the, in the Middle East, it may be connected to that. But no one knows the time of his return. Fourth, there's a Bible teacher you should trust and listen to even though he ignores reasonable principles of biblical interpretation. So many of those, from Korea's new heaven and earth to the prosperity gospel teacher down the street. And fifth, and, and maybe connected, I hear this a lot, by his stripes we are healed, that, that wonderful and precious Verse from Isaiah 53, talking about the ministry of the, the Messiah, means that physical healing now is included in the atonement of Jesus. Not, not in the age to come, but, but right now. That one might be especially prevalent in Singapore. Joseph Prince writes this in his book on the Lord's Supper, entitled, Eat Your Way to Life and Health. He's trying to connect the Passover, where Psalm 105.37 says God made the Israelites physically strong for their journey out of Egypt. He's trying to connect that with the Lord's Supper. This is what he writes. If that could happen for the children of Israel when all they had was a natural lamb, the shadow of the true lamb of God that you and I have, how much more should we see our bodies healed, our strength rejuvenated, and every weakness reversed when we partake of the Holy Communion? We have the true Lamb of God, the substance and reality of the shadow the Israelites believed in. How much more should we have none feeble and sick among us? Apparently, you can buy communion at his church and skip the doctor's visit. That, friends, is a diverse and strange teaching about food strengthening the body rather than the grace of Jesus strengthening our hearts. So we're surrounded by false teaching. How do we confront it? Let's take a lesson from how the, the author does it here. What's the author's argument? Simply put, he says yet again that Jesus is better. Look at this. Verse 9, it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. He means that you're going to have to focus on grace. You're going to have to meditate on God's unmerited favor to you. It should never lose its wonder to you. If you yawn at grace, you're in deep trouble. 
Verse 10, we have an altar to eat from that the Old Testament priests can't even eat from. Why? Verse 11, because on the Day of Atonement, the animal wasn't eaten, but rather burned outside the camp. So verse 12, Jesus was like this sacrifice. He also went outside the camp to suffer. Uh, He's pointing here to how the crucifixion happened in Golgotha, outside the city of Jerusalem, in a a place of, of... where despised things happen, like crucifixions, okay? It sanctifies, well, well, this is different, okay, so, so it's the same in these ways, but the sacrifice of Jesus is different and better. How? Well, it sanctifies his people through his blood. It makes us holy, fully and finally. It's not a, a repeated sacrifice. But also, we are provided an altar that we can eat from. Now, I think this is metaphorical. He, he means that we can feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. And for all those reasons, it's a better sacrifice. So rather than being tempted to look for something better out there, they should and we should be doing two things. One is letting that truth strengthen our hearts. Two, should make us want to follow him even though it brings a stigma on us. That's the word reproach there in verse 13. Literally a stigma in the eyes of those around us. So let's follow him outside the camp, bearing the stigma he bore. It's another way of saying let us take up our cross and follow him. So how do we avoid being led astray by the swirling false teaching around us? By focusing on Jesus' better sacrifice and by being willing to follow him even if it means suffering persecution here and now. After all, here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. You know, friends, the older we get, the less we should trust ourselves. You and I can forget so quickly what is true, what matters. We're so easily distracted by the comforts of life around us, things that we think is going to make us truly happy. If you and I are not going to be led away, we need faithful leaders who will preach the word to us. You need them. I need them. Friends, I wonder what danger you are facing right now. I wonder what teaching is attractive to you, what voices you're listening to. When I think about friends who have drifted away from Christ, it's usually not some traumatic event that caused them to leave suddenly. More often, it's over time. They got focused on other things. They lost their sense of wonder, what it looks like to be fully and finally forgiven. A final application here. Let's remember to keep choosing our pastors wisely here at GBC. When Paul was exhorting a young pastor named Timothy to give himself to preaching the word, he said this, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Interestingly, Paul puts the onus not just on Timothy to preach the word with faithfulness, but on the congregation, you notice that? Who, who accumulates for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and this bad example. The congregation does. You know, one of the reasons we can't install a pastor here without a congregational vote is because we need to make it clear that you have a job description as the congregation. You have a responsibility before God to make sure that the The preachers behind this pulpit will will teach the word and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ, not something else. It's essential for congregations to know that. That's the job description, to make sure you have unoriginal pastors who tell you the truth about false teaching. Let's consider third and finally how good teachers work for your benefit. Pick up the text there in verse 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The language of sacrifice is continued here from the earlier section. We don't have a physical temple to offer animal sacrifices, but we do, as Romans 12 says, offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices. He actually gives us four different ways that we offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice. Uh, First, by praising Him. He says we offer up a sacrifice of praise to God in, in public and private and family worship. We adore Him, we pray to Him, we, we sing to Him, we speak of Him as the source of everything good in our lives. So we praise Him. A second sacrifice is we confess Him. He says praise is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. I wonder if you've thought about acknowledging His name as a big deal. Uh, part of our offering is just making sure that we identify with Jesus. You know, you, you should run up the flagpole, uh, the flag of your Christianity, early in your relationships with people. It, it, it doesn't get easier. There, there's no, like, smooth way to do it later on. Don't, 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 don't believe that. Run up the flagpole early. Tell people who live around you, those who work around you, uh, I'm a Christian. That's, what, that's what's most important to me. You're, you're going to hear me talking about Jesus a lot. He's my best friend. That's a good conversation starter. Really, tell me more about that. Or, okay, get away from you weirdo. I don't know. But run up the flagpole early. A fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. A third sacrifice, doing good. We turn horizontal here and think about the basic posture of trying to do good to those around you. To have a gracious readiness of mind to be of spiritual and physical benefit to other people. Is is that so simple that you pass right over it? Well, try to apply it before you leave today. Do good to someone. And then fourth, the sacrifice of sharing what we have. Every person here has something to share. Could be material, a, a home, a car, a place to stay, financial help to those in need. It could be time. Maybe you're younger. Say, I'm, I'm young and poor. Well, your time is valuable. Maybe, maybe you could help care for the, the, the younger children of, of a family in your care group. Maybe you could go help around the house with an older person who's in need of help. Your time, your talent, your treasure. Everybody has something to share. I met a friend in Shanghai who was converted to Christianity in part because, in his words, I kept seeing Christians share food with each other. When he said it, I, I, I laughed out loud. It was, it, it was I, what, what do you mean? He's like, well, he, he was, I think, a foreign student in the U.S., and U.S. Baptist churches' potluck meals are like a, you know, like a weekly occurrence, okay? So potluck meals, and he kept getting invited over to people's houses, and people would bring food to share, and he just... From his background and his experience, people don't share food with each other. That was the thing that struck him, led in part to his conversion. So we have this exhortation to love God in two ways, praising him and confessing him, and loving others in two ways, doing good to them and sharing what you have with them. And then we get our bookend verse about our leaders here, verse 17. It's a famous An important verse, obey your leaders, submit to them. We should be clear, this is not blind, absolute obedience, but insofar as they speak the word of God and work within their office, leaders should expect your support. They are servants of Christ and his gifts to the church. So so the way you interact with them should reflect your understanding that that's true. So so you ought not think in your mind that you can be praising and and lovingly adoring Jesus and then speaking behind the back of some leader in your church. That, that, that 
that's a contradiction. All right? That they're a servant of Christ to the church, a gift to you, how you receive them, how you interact with them, how you speak with them should be reflective of what you think about Jesus. Frail and weak vessels though they are, they are worthy of some piece of that affection that you have for him. But it's interesting here that our author seeks to motivate them to do this, to obey and submit, by pointing out that their ministry, even their very existence, is for your benefit. Did you see that? He says that they keep watch over your souls. What is it like to have someone keeping watch over you? Friends, it means that someone cares. I don't just mean that there are smiling greeters. We have those. But I mean that people are taking an active interest in how you are doing. They want to pray for you. They want to know if there's something you need so that you can follow Jesus. To be watched over means to be loved. I think one of the things that we've lost in our age of mega churches with movie theater style dimmed lighting and multiple service where we got to get them in and we got to get them out is the care of souls. That's what's at the heart of all Christian ministry. Friends, a a church should be ever striving to be a place where everyone knows your name and everyone is glad that you came. Now, I know with the the turnover and that's a lot of work. That's a lot of work right there. But that should be our goal. And a place where some leaders know you and are praying for you where there is a relationship. So application point here, friends, make it easy for your leaders to know you. Show up, engage with people, talk to us when you have needs and concerns. Don't ever say to an elder, I know you are busy, but... I I know why you say that. You're trying to be nice, but all of us have 24 hours in the day. And I can tell you the elders of this church, they just want to care for you. They just want to know how you're doing. So so tell them how they can pray for you. Tell them if there's some need that you have. Make it easy for them to know you. He says here that we should make the work of our leaders to shepherd us a joy and not a thing to be groaned at, for that would be of no advantage to you. There it is again. Why do they exist? For your advantage, for your benefit. That's what a good leader is living for. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that all leaders will live that way. James 3.1 says that leaders are held to a stricter judgment precisely because of how important it is that they do not abuse the trust that they are given. So perhaps I'll close the sermon with a word to fellow leaders at GBC, to the deacons who serve this congregation so well, You have a high calling. You are meant to model for us Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May you do your work with joy, knowing that. And to my fellow elders, I'm aware of no verse in all the scriptures that so clearly lays out our calling, our joy, and our accountability. Our business, at its root, is the care of souls. There are other things, too, that matters. There are budgets, there are buildings, there's teachings and trainings. But at its core, we keep watch over eternal souls. And there is great joy in that. As we think back to conversions, growth, our camaraderie in the work, our vision for the future. But there is this sobering underlining truth that we will give an account to the master. We should let it sober us. We should let it motivate us. Scottish Scottish pastor John Brown had an occasion to write a letter to a, a seminary student who was graduating from seminary. 
and taking his first pastorate. Uh, It was a small parish, some 30 people. He wrote this in his letter to the young man. I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small in comparison with those of the brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think that you've had enough. We should conclude. Good leaders are unoriginal. They tell you the truth about false teaching. They work for your benefit. In some ways, the challenge of responding well to Christian leadership is harder for us than it was for Shackleton and his men on the endurance. For them, the challenge of survival had a way of focusing their minds and hearts towards their objective. And they did stay focused. Amazingly, all 27 men stranded on an Antarctic ice flow made it safely home. The stakes are not less for us. They're greater. The danger is more subtle, losing focus on the unchanging Jesus, being led away by diverse and strange teachings, or beginning to think that here we have something lasting. And that's why in God's providence we ought to remember our leaders, those who spoke the word of God to us. We ought to consider the outcome of their way of life. We ought to imitate their faith. Many that you have known are dead and gone. The message that they preached is not. By God's grace, generations yet to come will preach the good news of Jesus Christ from this pulpit. His death for sin, his resurrection for our justification, his imminent return. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Believe that, friends and let it give you endurance. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us in Christ. It's a joy for us to think upon the grace that we pray would strengthen our hearts and cause us to live faithfully for you in this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Let us rise as we respond together. How do we respond to the leaders that are around us? Do we believe that Christ is leading us, that He is in control, and that He is worthy? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. This all creation groaning It is This new creation coming It is It's the glory of the Lord To be the light within our midst It is Is it good that we remind ourselves of Rude and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. 
Let us receive God's blessing through His Word. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. Let's take some time to reflect on what God has spoken to your heart this morning. Thank you for worshipping with us. Remember to head down to Level 3 for a cup of hot drink and fellowship. Then join us for either of the equipped sessions at 11am. See you again next Sunday. Have a God bless the week.